everyone. I'm Melody Morocco. And I'm Bill C. Welcome back to the Into the Heart of YouTube podcast, where two longtime fans discuss YouTube music album by album and tour by tour, the fan experience and the perception of YouTube in cultural consciousness. Right. Melody and I, we came of age with YouTube. We saw it all happen in real time. And as we sit here in 2023, we still care about this band, but we're concerned about their legacy. So as we take a trip back through the band's history, we're going to try and place it in proper context and ultimately get to the bottom of whether U2 is one of the greats of all time or are the haters right after all. Right. And that's what we'll continue to do on this second part of our dive into Rattle and Hum. That's right. When we left off last time, we were going old school and took a pause at the end of what would be side two of record one of the vinyl, uh, which was a pretty eh, live version of Pride. <laughs> so now we pick it up with maybe something a little better. Um, what would uh, lead off side three, record two of Rattle and Hum, Angel of Harlem. Let's give a listen. give a little bit of context here um this song was the second single from rattle and hum it was released on december 1st 1988 um and its b-sides were a room at the heartbreak hotel and a live version of love rescue me um it the song doesn't have the commercial success of desire which was the first single and it peaks at number 14 in the states and number nine in the uk uh, which I found find odd actually, because this is a really fun song. Um, yep. And I think it might be the only one that does sound like that musical journey we were promised in a sense, um, where you can hear the inspiration of American music um, and growth and the joy that it brought to the band as musicians, as fans. And that's conveyed in the lyrics as well, because as much as the song is an ode to Billie Holiday, Bono has said it was about the band's first visit to New York and the excitement that they felt at being there and hearing jazz on the radio for the first time. And that's what you get from this song, this sense of exuberance. I agree. Um, Bono has said you two only have a few jukebox songs, you know, songs Johnny Public randomly drops a quarter in to hear at a bar. Uh, Angel Harlem certainly is one. Uh, the aforementioned Desire is another. Um, this is one they recorded at Sun Studios um, in the latter portion of the last leg of the Josh Tree Tour. And I have to say, I do love the production on this one. And the horns uh, actually work here. They don't always on this record, uh, providing great uh, accentuation. Um, Bono gives a great vocal, and it's such a huge sing-along chorus. Um, one of the big sing-along choruses, I think, in the catalog. Um, 
but I can't believe no one caught the historical inaccuracy in the lyrics. Birdland, of course, was on 52nd Street, not 53rd. Come on, guys. <laughs> this is the second major gaffe. Uh, this is an early morning, April 4th on Pride. Um, but this song is timeless and enduring classic. Uh, definitely one of the high marks on Rattle and Hum. Uh, unlike this next one, Melody, have you sharpened your knives? I know I did. If you're ready to go on, this is the low light of the whole rattle on period. Love rescue me. If we must, Bill, if we must. We must. This is my least favorite song on Rattle and Hum. Um, it's totally in the wrong hands musically. You've dumbed down Edge. Uh, the horns are hackneyed. I really don't like this track at all. Um, lyrics are okay, but Bono would write about this subject matter more articulately over time. The Wanderer comes to mind on Zuropa. Um, the less I think about this song, let alone hear the song, the better. Uh, Melody, it's your turn. Yeah. Um, the big problem for me on this song is it just sounds inauthentic. Um, yes. It sounds like you two are trying to write a cover of uh, a hungover on Sunday, crying in your beer country song. I would have um, loved that. I don't think it even gets near that, but that's me. Sorry for interrupting. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but I mean, I'll say the obvious here, right? They're, they're not a country band. Mm -hmm. um, there, and I mean, there's no reinvention of the genre that allows them to pay homage while retaining who they are. Exactly. Um, I, I agree with you that the lyrics are okay, but again, there's something about the way the religious images are used to show, you know, the conflict between longing for faith and facelessness that feel, uh, going to use the word again here, inauthentic. Um, mm. You know, and speaking of the lyrics, we'll give some context here. Speaking of the lyrics, they were written by Bono and Bob Dylan. Um, the story goes that Bono had a dream about Dylan singing a song, woke up and started writing the song down, in, the song that he heard in the dream down. Um, and later that day, he calls up Dylan, as you do if you're Bono, uh, goes to Dylan's house and they finish writing the lyrics together. God, that guy loves to name drop. We get it, Bono. You know famous people and love to ring them up. Sorry. Yes, 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 he does. <laughs> um, you know, in the recording of the song, Dylan provided backing vocals. Um, and supposedly he recorded a turn on lead vocals as well. Uh, but that was pulled for contractual reasons. Traveling Woolberries specifically. Right, right. Um, you know, and maybe the Dylan version would have put a better, more authentic spin on the song. But as it stands, the music and vocal delivery sound forced, overdone, uh, to the point where I just can't take the song seriously. Mm. Um, like you, Bill, it's my least favorite song on Rattle and Hum. And really, I think it's in my bottom five U2 songs, period. 
I will hold you to that as we go through some of the other records <laughs> that have a few <laughs> difficult moments. So this will be our uh, standard bearer. Uh, yeah, this is a terrible song. I'm sorry. It, it doesn't get any better with this next one either. This is a, a twofer for, from hell, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Uh, <laughs> Tell me how you really feel, Bill. Hey, this, <laughs> this next one is When Love Comes to Town, and I'll tell you all about it. Let's listen. So B.B. King was in Ireland, and Bono decides to write a song for B.B. Great. But for some reason, he can't give it away entirely. He wants to do it with B.B. and put it on Rattle and Hum. Okay. Now, in B.B.'s hands, in B.B.'s band's hands, I should say, this would work. In the hands of a band with a cool sense of swampy rhythms, it would work. Uh, but U2, again, we're back to U2's fundamental flaw they never had the musical dictionary or any sense of how to apply a broad range of styles into their music, which is how they found their voice in the first place and turned their own limitations into their strength. Um, so love you, Larry. Love you, Adam. But you're not Charlie Watts and Bill Wyman. You don't just wake up one day and think you can fall in with that kind of swing and backbeat necessary for this kind of music. Um, it's hubris to think you can. Um, this is the misunderstanding most people have about the blues and country, that because the chords are simple, it must be easy to play. Pure ignorance and ignores the incredible nuance that's necessary to understand before diving into this music. And this is where I have my big problem with them going, quote unquote, roots. Um, in the film, we see them work on this song with B.B. at a sound check in Fort Worth, Texas. And I will say that version sounds much looser a much better feel than the wooden version they included on the record. But for me, this one is almost as bad as Love Rescue Me. I, I do like Edge's very Edge-like solo. He manages to get in there as a counterpoint. <laughs> But overall, this song exemplifies what's wrong about Rattling Hum entirely. It's you two not only playing, uh, not playing to their strengths, but, but refusing to admit this arena is beyond their capabilities. Uh, but what do I know? I think it did chart as a single. So uh, what do I know? <laughs> well, you're right. Um, uh, it did chart as a single. Um, it was the third single off Rattle and Hum. It was released in April of 1989. And it did fairly well in the charts. Um, it went to number six in the UK on their singles charts. Didn't do as well in the US Billboard singles charts. It's topped out at 68. But it did do quite well on the, uh, uh, what do you call it, the mainstream rock chart. Um, it went to number two, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and while we're talking about the single, um, the B-sides on it were the great cover of Patti Smith's Dancing Barefoot, um, and also an extended live-sounding remix of When Loves Comes to Town, which featured uh, Little Richard doing backup vocals and a little preaching. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> a longer version, you said. A longer version. Have. I mean, I thought it was kind of cool. <laughs> um, you know, 
I do disagree with you a bit here. I don't think this is a great song, but I do like it. Um, and I, I mean, I, I'm going to take a vote here for for Adam and Larry. I mean, I think they did a sufficient job keeping the groove. But um, if BB King hadn't been on the song, maybe I would have felt the way I do about Love Rescue Me. Um, you know, that it was just completely inauthentic. But we do get to hear BB, and he does elevate the song. And oh, his voice when he sings that verse starting, I was there when they crucified my Lord. I heard that I held the scabbard when the soldier drew his sword. Masterful. Let's listen to that. I was there when they crucified my Lord. I held the scabbard when the soldier drew his sword. I threw the dice when they pierced his side. But I've seen love conquer the great divide. Um, overall, I do agree that this song isn't in U2's wheelhouse. But, you know, as I said, I think with B.B. King on it, I just I don't know. I just can't help but like it groove a little bit. And then I have the other counterpoint, which is if U2 is just not on it, I'd like it. <laughs> <laughs> OK, OK, fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's why I say if Bono just give it to B.B., the song would work. It, the song itself is not flawed uh it's in the hands of the wrong people that's for me um and, and again i think it's hubris to think you can pull that off uh, i'm sorry this just again points to what we were talking about on still have found you add bb to provide quote unquote authenticity you know what that works for you it to me it turns me off it it I just there's hubris that that's my problem with it um, yeah, I mean, to me, the difference here between I still haven't found which, um, you know, you have the gospel choir accent and here you have it's an actual duet between Bono and BB. And there's a lot of BB on the song. So to me, it does feel a little bit different. It feels more of a, a collaboration. It, but, certainly, because we we had talked about how uh, U2 is more a support on Still Haven't Found. Uh, granted, I get that. Um, I mean, you know, I've had my say. I, I don't mean yeah. to. I get it, I, and I think it's and it's valid. Endlessly. It's certainly, certainly valid point. Yeah. All right, but this next one, I think uh, we both like a lot. Um, this is Heartland. Let's give a listen. See the sunrise over skin. Don't change See the sunrise over think of this as the song that sounds the most like a U2 song on Rattle and Hum. Definitely. Um, sonically, I don't think it really fits on this record, um, but I like it, so I'm glad it's here. Mm -hmm. um, I love the dreamy quality of Edge's guitar. I love Adam's driving sexy bass line. Bono's vocal is lovely and controlled, and it, you know, it leads up to that wonderful falsetto towards the end. Um, Bono has said that the lyrics were inspired by a two-week road trip that he and Adam took across the southwestern states and into the American South. 
And as conflicted as the band are in their relationship with the states, here we have a love song to the country, really, um, the good and the bad. And, you know, you can see the cinematic montage from that road trip float by in lines like 66, a highway speaks of deserts dry of cool green valleys. 
it really adds to the jumbled quality of this the sonic journey of the record i do like the music um i think edge is doing some interesting things here but it doesn't quite feel finished um it feels like maybe it needed another part or parts maybe somebody like jimmy ivine um you know should have told them to keep working on it um although there are some good lyrical lines here i'm not really a big fan of them um you mentioned lyrics about goldman and i agree with all that um you know there's sort of this self-indulgent puffed up machismo that runs through it which feels very odd you know the example is um i don't believe in cocaine got a speedball in my head i could cut and crack you open do you hear what i said so why don't we listen to that sure Based on the lyrics that Bono was was capable of at this point, I, I don't know. I mean, this sounds just like a first draft to me. And then, of course, you've got that bit of lyric that's really a head scratcher since it's on this album. Uh, don't believe in 60s, the golden age of pop. You glorify the past when the future dries up. <laughs> Okay, um, that sentiment is more than a bit ironic on this record, which is all about paying homage to the past. You're being kind, uh, Melody. It's the height <laughs> of hypocrisy. Literally what you've been doing on the whole record. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, as you said, like it, it doesn't sound like it belongs on here. I mean, I think it just speaks to the fact that the band started to realize at the latter stages of recording there was no more they could mine from this territory. They they had they had they had already moved on. They just didn't know where they were going yet. I mean, they, they, there was no more roots to be found. <laughs> and and of right. course, you know that that can speak to a whole other thing that I was talking about earlier. They didn't really have the repository <laughs> musically to draw from. They didn't have the musical knowledge. So of course, there would only be a little bit. I mean, again, I don't want to keep pounding them for this, but. I think they ultimately did realize before they even finished recording that there was just no more they could do with this. And it was, as we talked at the beginning, there was going to be a reinvention anyway, because there was no more here. Sure. And, and that's, and that's completely fair. But again, you have to ask the question, why is this on this, this album? Why, why wasn't it saved for a future project? It, it just doesn't make sense. There were other songs. Absolutely. In fact, they were recording quite a bit. This is probably, the record they recorded the most, at least to date, um, as we had mentioned, all these other tracks, you know, Hallelujah, Here She Comes, would have loved that on here sure. instead of this song. That um, would have made more sense. I see you dressed to kill. I know I can't wait until Hallelujah. Here she comes. I see you dressed in black. I guess I'm not coming back. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Here she comes. Born
Yeah, I mean, but and, and again, I don't think that it, it's this song is better or worse than those songs. It's just listening to it. I, I don't understand the thought process that they thought that this song, were they trying to give a sneak peek? Like, hey, we really can do other stuff that sounds like us. We're not really committed to this root stuff. It doesn't make sense. No, I think if there was one that was going to be that, that's all I want is you. But we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah. All right. All right. So the next is for some reason we're talking about Star Spangled Banner. Why is that melody? <laughs> well, uh, let's see. So it's the Jimi Hendrix version of the Star Spangled Banner. It led into Bullet the Blue Sky. It was a set piece during the Joshua Tree tour. And here it is. It's captured for posterity. That's really all, all right. I got, Bill. All right. Let's just play the bit so we can say we played the bit. <laughs> Hit it, Jimmy. <laughs> it's not even you, too. Okay. All right. So again, for me, this is more referencing old rock stars. Uh, as you said, the segues into the live version of Bullet the Blue Sky, as they did on this tour. This is um, this is a good version of Bullet the Blue Sky, though definitely not definitive. Uh, they do more imaginative versions later on Zoo TV and, e and even on Elevation. But it's strong, albeit a little dated with the name-checking ABC News, Hill Street Blues, and the old-time gospel hour. I can't tell the difference between ABC News, Hill Street Blues, and a preacher in the old-time gospel hour. Stealing money from the sick and the old. Well, the God I believe in isn't short of cash, mister. Um, I, I don't love the self-righteous tone of Bono's voice uh, with the stage pattern, um, something that pervaded a lot of the last leg of the Joshua Tree tour. Surprise, that's when the cameras are rolling. Um, <laughs> right. But this was a time period where Bono doesn't sound lost in the music, which is what we always loved about him, right? Um, he sounds more like he has a scripted agenda. And again, I have to ask, no one detected this? I, it's it's just, again, like they had veto power. So they, 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 they green-lighted all of this. Um, the band does sound good. But overall, this is only so-so for me. Uh, it's okay, but not special. Again, I would have chosen live versions of Streets or Exit or Running to Standstill over this, but I'm not surprised this got the nod. Yeah, I agree with you with all that. However, maybe putting this song on the record was a foregone conclusion since a line from it gives the, the film and the record their title. 
you know, right. um, and the image of Bono shining a spotlight on edge, which was such an iconic moment during the Joshua Tree tour, of course, during Bold the Blue Sky, um, was used for the album cover and the movie poster. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's an interesting tidbit about that photo. Um, I knew that Anton Corbin, U2's longtime percussionist, photographer um had taken that picture but i always assumed that it had been taken during a live performance but nope it was recreated in a photography studio i did not know that and of course it was right (laughs) another another aspect of the whole marketing juggernaut that felt inauthentic and super annoying (sighs) yeah i mean i'm so sorry i mean it's this one as we get deeper into rattle and hum it's just easy to pile on. I am trying not to, but there's a lot that annoys the hell out of me about That's this true. kind of stuff. That's true. Although I think that we're going to stop that with this next song. That's true. Yeah. And yeah. what is which that is, next song? Which is All I Want Is You. Good point. Let's listen. You say you want diamonds on the ring. story to remain untold but all the promises we made from the cradle to the grave when all I want is you so since I've been keeping track of the singles releases from Rattle and Hum, I feel obliged to mention that All I Want Is You was released as the fourth and final single um, from the album in June of 1989 um, with B-side covers of Unchained Melody and Everlasting Love. You had to mention those, didn't you? See, I did. You told me we were going we were gonna take the, the foot off the accelerator and, and give some praise, <laughs> and they had to mention those two. Those two covers are absurd they sound so out of touch you know i have to tell you i have to there tell we you, go i agree with you on Unch- <laughs> unchained melody but i think everlasting love is great i really do it's hey. it's fun it's exuberant it's great may, may, that may be so i again it just it speaks to the the bigger problem though it's like why are we covering these songs right. it makes no sense all right Sorry. Please right, go well, on. Let, let's go back to the single for a second. Exactly. Um, so the Australians and, and the Brits, um, they they knew a good song when they heard it. And the song went to number two and number four, respectively, on their singles charts. Uh, didn't do very well in Canada. It topped out at number 67. And um, it was number 83. That's where it topped out in the States. Mm. But for this one, um, there was renewed interest after it was featured in the Winona Ryder, Ethan Hawke-led film Reality Bites, uh, which was released in 1994. Uh, The song got re-released as a single, and this time it reached number 38 on the Billboard singles chart. That's kind of interesting. Nice job, Winona. There you go, yeah. Um, You know, for me, I have to say, getting to the song, this is where U2 cracks the code, and they take all of that love that they've developed for Americana roots music, um, fuse it with what makes them unique and special as a band. And they produce this original and relevant take on a country folk love song. I think it's brilliant. Bono's melody line and, and 
and delivery, along with Edge's strummed acoustic guitar part at the top of the song, really lay down that sort of achy country feel. Um, but following the first chorus, you know, as you as you were <laughs> one to say, Bill, the cowboy hats come off um, <laughs> with Edge's jangly electric, um, a very U2 sounding rhythm section from Adam and Larry. And we get that first swell of the modern string section that was arraigned by uh, Van Dyke's Parks. And the song just grows into something special. What are your thoughts, Bill? This is great. Uh, Edge is in his element here. He's His playing is majestic creating a orchestral guitar soundscape uh, that gives way beautifully at the end to Van Dyke Parks, which was genius to get him on here, but his scored strings at the end are sublime. Um, Larry and Adam, as you say, sounding great, great groove. And, and this, unlike the rootsier tunes, is very much in their wheelhouse. Um, Bono's singing is gorgeous, uh, one of his great performances. It's timeless, enduring, U2 classic, I'd say one of their greatest productions and performances on record. Top 10 in their catalog for me. Um, almost makes you forget some of the more troubling tunes. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> I found it interesting Bono claimed in his book that their lyrics are supposedly written from Ali's perspective towards mm, him. Yeah. Mm, more retroactive history telling by Bono. <laughs> he loves that. Um, uh, I mean, he's dedicated the song to her for years, so I don't know, okay. <laughs> I mean, like the first verse, would Ollie say to Bono, you want diamonds on a ring of gold? And hasn't it been Bono who's always said Ali doesn't want her story told? Right, right. Just saying, uh, the second verse could be, you say, you give me a high with no with no one on it. I mean, that could be Ali talking to Bono, but, you know, who who knows? Maybe um, it keeps it fresh for him. You know, yeah, yes. Well, if, if that's what you want to call it, you know, more power <laughs> to you. <laughs> I'm being kind. We beat up on them, really. I know that. Well, episode. listen. I'm trying to be it, kind here. Well, listen, I'll, I'll go on record. This is the crowning jewel of Rattle and Hum. Uh, but interestingly, as the closing track, the last U2 song and single and video of the 80s, it doesn't point the way forward creatively. Instead, it's more like an exclamation point on U2 Mach 1. Uh, but it's a damn good one. So, hey, we've made it through Rattle and Hum, Melody. I want my t-shirt. <laughs>
so why don't we go ahead and, and I'll start and we'll uh, we'll talk about our overall thoughts on the album. Sounds good. Well, actually, um, you've got to talk about the two intertwined projects here, right? Um, the album and the film. Mm -hmm. And we'll start with the album. Um, for me, the thing that really comes to mind is that it needed an editor maybe a guide, <laughs> someone who would have come in during the recordings and or selecting of songs and say, that's not working, guys. Maybe you could try this instead and then play them an idea. Um, that seems to have been a part of the problem with the band working with Jimmy Iovine on this project. He's just not the type of producer who could help them find their way out of those blind alleys. Um, of him, Bono has said, and I quote, um, he has an enormous IQ but he's not a player who can get in the room and pick up an instrument and improvise with you. We were really a punk rock group trying to play Bach. Our limitations are our strengths, but really we need keyboard players around. We need the experimentation around us sometimes to get to new terrain, unquote. Mm -hmm. I've liked a lot of Iveen's work as a producer. I'm thinking about you know his stuff with Tom Petty and Stevie Nicks but I don't think he provided the collaboration or the rudder that the band needed for this project. Of course, that lays all of the final decisions really with the band. Um, and they did have, as you mentioned, Bill, they had final say on everything. Um, so all of the decisions are really on them and a lot of them are just questionable. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there are obvious concessions made to have a similar feel to the movie, but especially the second half of the album, it really just doesn't tell a cohesive story. And then let's look at those live tracks. Like I said earlier, I think the covers are here because they're in the movie, period. Wasn't yeah. a whole lot of other thought about them. As for the other live tracks, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Has the guest appearance by a gospel choir, um, Silver and Gold, Will the Blue Sky, and, and even Helter Skelter, one of the covers, have those speeches, sermons, rants, whatever you want to call them by Bono, mm -hmm. that as we've discussed on repeat listenings are exasperating in their egomania. Um, it was just supremely poor decision-making to include those tracks that threatened to make the band, and particularly Bono, a parody of himself. Mm -hmm. I mean, U2 is a great live band. They do not need the gimmicks. Yeah. Um, you know, and as for the new studio songs, the inclusion of some of these is just a head-scratcher. I love the song Heartland, but it feels out of place here, as does God Part Two. Again, you know, they needed an editor, a, a, a guide for this project. Look, let's get to the bigger picture here. You two got bad reviews before. I mean, but save for a few English critics who made a sport of it, it was not as personal as it was virtually across the board on Round Home. As we've touched on, the band and management made some, I would call, very uncharacteristic and foolish decisions that brought a lot of this on themselves. But most of that, I think, was because of the film, specifically the grand scope of the film and the backlash to the oversaturation factor. Just too much U2, too much Bono, too much talk of them as saviors of rock. Yeah. And, and you know, speaking of the film, um, I, I have to say, for all of my beating up on this project, I remember being supremely excited when it was coming out. And um, fun fact for me, I was fortunate to be able to attend the Hollywood premiere of the film. So I remember all the excitement surrounding it. It was great fun. Uh, but even then, as a massive U2 fan, particularly at that time, it, it felt like a letdown. Um, mm. 
you know, I have to tell you, I hadn't seen that movie in decades. So I watched it again recently, as I know you did, um, to see how I would feel about it. And I have to say, first off, I was struck with how well it was filmed, particularly Mm -hmm. the live black and white footage. It's stunning. Um, Bono has said that Phil Juanu and the band discussed um, Scorsese's Raging Bull as a reference point. And I think that you can see that. You know, you you feel just like you feel like you're in the ring with De Niro's Jake LaMotta. You feel like you're on stage with the band. It's very True. intimate. True. Um, I don't think the color live stuff is as special, but it's still well done. And it captures the spectacle of a U2 show um, during the Joshua Tree tour. Um, then I guess there's that um, musical journey stuff. Um, you know, the interviews, the montages. Uh, and there's another head scratcher, particularly Bono, but really all of the members have said such poignant and thought provoking things in interviews, but you absolutely get no sense of that in the film. It's so wooden. It's so boring. It would have been better had they just chucked a lot of that stuff, really. Yeah. I mean, Phil Juano has said he filmed hundreds of hours. Poor Phil. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and a lot of it has leaked out over the years and as a fan normally you'd go oh cool i want to see that no you don't um <laughs> it is boring uh the band is so freaking po-faced and scared to show themselves in anything resembling an unguarded moment it's just one mind-numbing scene after another i mean i about fell asleep watching them riding through new york on the way to the church to do still haven't found i mean what am i watching four guys with a hangover I couldn't agree with you more about that film. <laughs> and you know, I, I, I watched it so no one else had to. I just want to say that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I got to tell you, I, I recently I read this Rolling Stone interview that came out at the time um, the, the film was released, so late 88. Yeah. And in it, Phil Juanu apologizes for the over serious, dour tone of the fil- film. And I, I've got to say, it was really so unfair to use him as the as the scapegoat. I mean, he was the director, yes, but he didn't have final say over this film. The band did. I mean, I understand they wanted to distance themselves from the project, you know, but it's not cool, guys, to let somebody else take the blame. Really not cool. I'm just surprised uh, Phil wasn't made to apologize for the lyrical gaffe in Angel of Harlem, too. <laughs> <laughs> Probably in his contract. I don't know. Poor guy. (laughs) Poor man. Um, Yeah, I mean, listen, the film has not gotten better with age. Uh, I, I too, watched it for the first time in decades. Um, All its faults that annoyed the hell out of critics in 88 are blindingly clear today. There is a tone here throughout. We've talked about this. I'm looking at you, Bono. Just feel self-important while at the same time being delivered by someone who doesn't feel like an authority. But the biggest reason the film fails for me is this. Not once do you get a sense of who this band is, individually or collectively, which is staggering, considering that Bono, in particular, had spent the previous seven years being one of the most open-hearted and outspoken crusaders in all of rock. But here, he seems not just reserved, but passive and disengaged offstage. He's so painfully self-conscious that he basically chooses not to say or reveal anything. Um, So what's my takeaway on Rattle and Hum, the film? I mean, it's 
hard for me to believe I'm saying this, but you two most boring band ever. <laughs> <laughs> the album right. deeply flawed, but hell, there's yeah. three or four indisputable classics. So let me acknowledge that. But the film, I <laughs> agreed. I agree. I mean, yeah. they just they completely got in their own way. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, yeah. So where are we taking it from here, Bill? Well, we're gonna we 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 uh, we have this little thing I, I've written down called reactions slash love town slash where do we go from here? How does that sound? <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> not Let's that we write that. anything out, Lamelli. <laughs> of course <laughs> not. Of course not. Okay, as we've discussed in part one of this episode, regardless of all the bad reviews, the album was a huge commercial success. Eventually, it ends up selling 14 million copies. The film, however, not so much. Um, after big splashy premieres in Dublin, London, Paris, New York, and Los Angeles, uh, which began on October 27th, 1988, and spanned through early November, and tons and tons and tons and tons of press, mm -hmm. uh, the movie flopped big yeah. time. It made only $8.6 on its $5 million budget and was pulled from theaters after only three weeks. Yikes. Yeah. And because of all that, the band spends the first part of 1989 licking its wounds and laying low. But in the last part of the year, Bono coerces the band to tour some of the territories they didn't get to on the Josh Tree Tour. That's Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and parts of Europe. Uh, for the fans, particularly the bootleg collectors, this tour is notable for having the most varied set list they ever did. But the real reason for this, we learn later, was because the band was so bored playing the same material the same way over and over. Larry famously said they could play the set backwards and it wouldn't matter, which they actually did a few times. <laughs> um, they take with them on tour B.B. King's band and some female backing vocalists. Literally the red flag, a band is about to turn into Elvis in Vegas. Don't believe me? They started doing a snippet of Suspicious Minds on this tour. Anyway, during the encores, they bring B.B.'s horn section on to do Angel of Harlem, When Love Comes to Town, and Love Rescue Me, which again, I have to say, sounded pretty schmaltzy. Yeah, I, I was not a big fan of the horn section or the backup singers myself. I don't think it it just it, it didn't feel it didn't feel right. Right. Um but, you know, I recently watched the um, Love Town Sydney documentary that was filmed on November 18th, 1989, at the Sydney Entertainment Center. And I have to say, at least on that night, the band mm. sounded great and Bono was in fine voice. Um, however, that wasn't always the case during that the Love, the Love Town tour, as Bono really struggled with his voice. Um which caused several of the shows in both Australia and Europe to be postponed. Yeah. Um, anyway, in the documentary, in addition to, you know, the live songs, there's also this cheeky interview section um, where interviewer um, Alana Hill asks folks on the streets and members of U2 about love and sex. I have to say it's pretty cute. Uh, so much more relaxed and entertaining than any of the interviews on Rattle and Hum. And, you know, you watch it and you think the movie could have been so much better had they let go a little. Um, and just, you know, for information, the documentary is available on YouTube. And I, I think it's worth a, a watch. Uh, the band then returns home for four homecoming gigs at the Point Depot in Dublin, 
culminating in a New Year's gig on the last night of the decade. But the night before that, during the encore, Bono announces they're going to have to go away for a while to dream it all up again. Now, the importance of this comment has been mythologized a little bit, but as we said at the top of the episode, U2 had taken phase one, if you will, as far as it would go, and a reboot or a back-to-the-drawing-board rethink was in the cards no matter how Rattleham was received. At the end of the day, the motive to dream it all up again was really about longevity and legacy, which is what's always driven U2. And because, uh, you know, while Rattle and Hum was a massive commercial success, as you note, uh, they'd driven themselves into a creative dead end. They'd become caricatures and would have become a jukebox nostalgic act. Right. Um, but the reinvention that became Octung Baby um, would not be an easy birth. The band headed to Germany at the tail end of the Cold War to seek some magic from Hansa Studios, where Bowie and Eno found their own inspiration for the so-called Berlin Trilogy, but that didn't pan out, and depending on who you believe, the band almost broke up in the process. We're going to leave all of that for next time on the Into the Heart of U2 podcast. (music) 